One time, the the Buddha was doing a Q and A session with uh, some of his monks, and one of the monks asked him a question. He said, "What is the world's great fear?" That could be a question that we might ask too. What is the world's great fear? Anything coming to mind for you? Well, this was the Buddha's reply. The Buddha said, "The world's great fear is dukkha, is suffering." And perhaps that may resonate for some of you. Yet, even though this is our great fear in the world, it also happens to be the first of the four noble truths. We have this tremendous fear of dukkha, yet it is the first of the four noble truths. And without coming to know this first noble truth, there's no way that we can come to open and understand the other three noble truths. So let's just mention what these four noble truths are. The first one is that there is suffering, or there is dukkha. The second one is that there is a cause to dukkha, which is craving. The third noble truth is that there is an end to dukkha, an end to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the path to the end of suffering. So this is what we're going to explore a little bit tonight, because this was this subject was the topic. Of the Buddha's very first Dharma talk that he ever gave, so clearly it's it's an important one to give. It was called the Turning of the Wheel of the Dharma. So after his enlightenment, this was what he chose to talk about, to introduce the Dharma to us, to the world, with uh, an explanation on these four noble truths. This too is is、uh, quite interesting for us to take in, because if you think of all of the vastness of his understanding through all of his years of practice, he he summed up in essence the result of his practice and his understanding with these four major insights that he had on the night of his enlightenment. Unfortunately for us, he also said that these four noble truths were all that we needed to know, in order to come to know the end of suffering. That's to say, in order for us to know true happiness, we need to know just these four noble truths: that suffering and freedom from suffering lie within them. So they're key. It's also said, though, that these four noble truths are what all of the Buddhas of all times come to realize when they become liberated. So there've been many Buddhas over thousands, incalculable eons, and when each one becomes liberated, this is what they understand: the four noble truths. So there, once again, it it shows us. That they are really important, because it's these four noble truths that are, you could say, hidden from us 
through the ignorance that's in the mind until they're revealed to us by a Buddha who then begins to teach about them and thus we can begin to practice and come to understand them and see them for ourselves. So why are they noble? What's noble about these four truths? Well, for two reasons. Firstly, they're noble in as much as they're uncovered or discovered by someone such as a Buddha or an Arhant, uh, a fully liberated being. This is what they come to uncover within their own minds. And then the second reason they're, they're noble is that they're the timeless, unchanging, fundamental truths of our existence. And they're noble for this reason. So when we talk about or hear about these four noble truths, it's not about learning them off by heart, being able to recite, oh, the first, the second, the third, the fourth noble truth is such and such. Really, it's about imbibing them, taking them in, immersing ourselves in them, and bringing them to life within our lives so that we can see how they show themselves within us, so that we actually live the Four Noble Truths, so that they're uncovered from the darkness within our own minds, you could say. So let's take a look then at this first noble truth of Dukkha that is our great fear. The Buddha makes the statement. He says, there is Dukkha. It's the statement, there is Dukkha. Or there is suffering. It's not my suffering. It's not I am suffering. It's not life is suffering. But there is suffering. It's a simple statement of truth. So it's not personal, it's not belonging to anybody, and it's, it's also not a judgment on anybody. So this too is really helpful for us to know, because it's not that we've done something wrong and therefore we are afflicted by Dukkha. It's not that at all. So it's helpful for us to know because we can relax a little bit. Simply by virtue of the fact that we're here, as living beings in this round of samsara, that is this round of birth and death, where we reside, there is Dukkha. So it's, it's helpful for us to take this in. It can be a huge relief. So let's look at this actual word Dukkha that I've used. Because there are several translations. The one word I've been using up until now is suffering. And this is the most common translation of this word, dukkha. But it's not the most ideal word. It's limiting in as much as although dukkha does include suffering, there's so much more to this word dukkha. It has a deeper, more significant meaning for us. As a noble truth, really what it's doing is pointing to the inherent unsatisfactoriness of our existence. And it's unsatisfactory because everything in our world 
everything in our existence is conditioned. And it's conditioned by change. It's conditioned by impermanence. Therefore, it is unsatisfactory. What could possibly be satisfying about a constantly moving target? You can't pin anything down. Just as we're leaning to pin something down, it's changed, it's moved on, and now there's something different that's arisen. So a word we could rather use instead of suffering is unsatisfactoriness. And so some of us might use this word too, the unsatisfactory nature of existence, rather than the suffering nature, because even though we do use it, it's a limiting translation. So if we do, you, and I'll be probably using it throughout the talk, when you do hear us use this word suffering, we're actually meaning it in a much deeper, broader way to imply the unsatisfactory nature of experience. Some other words that are used too are the unreliability of things, the insecurity of things, or the ungovernability of experience. You cannot govern anything that's constantly moving. And then for some of us, we've just used this Pali word of dukkha, which means the unsatisfactory nature of experience. And when it comes to dukkha, there is no exception. Everybody experiences this first noble truth of dukkha. Everybody suffers. Those that are rich and beautiful and famous, as well as those that are experiencing hardship and poverty and difficulties and so on. Everybody experiences dukkha. So rather than denying it, which is often what we do, at all costs if we possibly can, uh, attempting to deny it and run away from it and pretend that it doesn't exist, rather than, than doing that, can we rather take up the Buddha's revolutionary offering, his revolutionary instruction, and that is to turn to it and to open to this first noble truth of Dukkha. Because we know that to try to deny it, to try to pretend that it doesn't exist, doesn't work. In fact, all of us must know somewhere that to pretend that Dukkha doesn't exist. We must all know that that doesn't work. Because if, if it did work, we wouldn't be here. We know underneath it all that what we've done up until now to try and be happy and avoid uh, this unsatisfactoriness hasn't worked. And so why not take up the Buddha's revolutionary suggestion and turn to it? That's what the Dharma is all about. Turning to this first noble truth of Dukkha. Opening to it. So let's take a look at the three possible kinds of Dukkha that we might experience in any given moment because there are three basic kinds. So the first kind, just pull this a little closer. The first kind in Pali it's called dukkha dukkha, but we often just call it body dukkha. It's or body pain. It's the basic aches and pains and unpleasantness of having a body. I'm sure we've all been experiencing this 
over the last day or two that we've been here. So it's the bodily discomforts that we might feel and then the mental kind of anguishes that can go together with having a body and what transpires when we have a body. For example, let's say the body gets sick. We get sick in one way or another and as a result of that we can't work. And so because we can't work Perhaps we can't earn sufficient money. Maybe we don't have enough. Uh, our, our employee lets us go because we can't work. Therefore, we don't have enough of an income to support ourselves and our family. And so we, we, we can't eat in a healthy way. And so now the family gets ill and so on. These are the physical and mental aches and pains and difficulties that come with having a body. Another way it's also described is the compounded nature of dukkha, the compounded nature of the suffering that comes with having a body. One thing upon another upon another. So we know this one very well. It's the most obvious kind of dukkha that there is. It's also called obvious dukkha. Then there's the second kind of dukkha, which is not quite so obvious. This kind in Pali is called Viparinama dukkha. It's called the dukkha of change. And it's specifically directed towards pleasant. Now what happens when we've got pleasant? We think, yay, I've got this pleasant experience and it's going to be here forever. Or we hope it is. But we know that it isn't. And so an example related to this second noble, the, this, the second kind of um, dukkha was on one of my very early long retreats, uh, a long retreat, a three-month retreat, 23, 20 or so years ago, I experienced a tremendous amount of the first kind of dukkha, body and mental anguish for a long three months. It just was not ending, on and on and on. But then one evening, one of the teachers came in and gave a talk on the Four Noble Truths. And he began to talk about the second kind of dukkha, the dukkha of change, Viparinama dukkha. And he was talking about the pleasant experience he was having and how it was so much dukkha, having this pleasant experience. And so here I'm sitting in the room and thinking, what on earth are you talking about? That's not Dukkha. What I'm experiencing is Dukkha. But then he went on to explain. Now, if you take a look in your own experience, if, you're, if you do have pleasant experience, if you look in a very quiet way underneath it all, you will see that there is an underlying dis-ease that's there because somewhere we know that it's going to change and within us we're thinking, how can I keep this? We're holding our breath. We're hoping that it's going to stay. We're hoping that it's going to last. So this is the quality of dis-ease. This is what happened to him. In fact, he had to have Sayadaw Upandita pointed out to him because he was so stuck and immersed in the pleasant that there was no way that he could see this underlying sense of dis-ease. So this was how Sayadu Upandita prized him free from that pleasantness by seeing that even though it is pleasant and fully worthy of being experienced, 
underneath it all, we know that this too is going to change. So this is the second kind of dukkha, the dukkha of, of change, specifically related to the pleasant. And then the third kind of dukkha, and this one is often the most difficult for us to understand. This is called Sankara dukkha, or we could call it the, the dukkha of the, the unstable formations, the, the conditionality of all experience. Now that, in talking about it in terms of unstable formations, is really referring to the constant arising and ceasing of moment-to-moment -moment experience that doesn't last for more than a less than the blink of an eye. It's constantly moving and changing. Coming together, falling apart. Coming together and falling apart. So that in truth there is no resting place. Things are always kind of shimmering in movement arising and ceasing in this way empty of any stability whatsoever. So let's look at a couple of very ordinary worldly examples that might help to explain this kind of dukkha for us. So again on retreat where I had a very clear and direct understanding in a very worldly kind of way you could say of this kind of dukkha, the constant arising and ceasing of experience was related to my fingernails. So again, these retreats, they're long, you know, so it's a long retreat. So, all right, the nails need to be cut. So we'll cut the nails. So you, in my mind, the, the thought is, right, I've cut the nails, done. That's it, over. But conditionality, coming together, falling apart, changing conditions moment to moment, the very moment that those fingernails are cut, they're starting to grow right away. So nothing is in a stable formation at all. So what happens, of course, as we know, geez, I thought I just cut them, but uh, 10 days or whatever later, we've got to do it again. A slightly different kind of example might be in our home. We clean our home, top to bottom, we vacuum, we dust, we, it is spick and span. The very moment it is complete, it is starting to get dirty, right away. Because conditions are coming together and falling apart all the time. Here we can see there's no resting place. We cannot say, done, over, the end, because it's changing. We'll have to do it again pretty soon or later, depending on the individual. <sighs> so this is this, the three basic kinds of dukkha that we'll experience at any given time. This kind of dukkha is also sometimes called the oppressive nature of experience. It is oppressive because it's, it doesn't give us a break. It just keeps coming at us, moment to moment to moment. So in announcing this first noble truth of, of, of Dukkha, the Buddha then went on to describe exactly what it entailed. If we haven't quite got the message, he thought he'd, he'd break it down for us even more. And so there are eight or more little points which will really give us 
uh, a deeper understanding of what Dukkha actually is. So the first one, birth is Dukkha. Aging is Dukkha. Death is Dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair are Dukkha. Association with the unloved is Dukkha. A, a separation from the loved is Dukkha. Not to get what one wants is Dukkha. And in short, the five aggregates, that's what this human being consists of, five aggregates, there's body, there's feeling, there's perception, there's formations in the mind, and there's the consciousness, the wakeful mind, the consciousness. This is Dukkha too. That's what he says. He sums it all up. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are Dukkha too. That seems like an awful lot of Dukkha, doesn't it? <laughs> so then, what tends to happen? When we hear a talk on this first noble truth, as I'm giving you right now, sometimes what can happen is that it can be construed as dwelling on the negative and the miserable. That's what it can seem like, can't it? That we're taking the mind towards the dark and the miserable. But that's not what we're doing at all. It's not about a case of, oh, sort of, woe am I with all this suffering. It's not spoken about to drag us down in any way. Actually, on the contrary, it's to help us to take the identification out of it all and to help us see it with perspective, just to see it with more clarity of mind. So we're bringing it into consciousness and saying, Oh yes, I see, there is Dukkha. Just that. It's not about wanting us to get all unhappy and, and miserable about it at all. Because if we don't know the truth of Dukkha, that it exists, that it is there, then we won't take up the mission, the instruction, the practice to free ourselves from Dukkha. Because we won't, we won't see the purpose, we won't see the point. We won't even want to begin to look in the right direction to free ourselves from Dukkha. We'll want to continue to do what we've been doing for so many lifetimes, pursuing as many pleasant experiences as we can get. And we know they don't last. So instead of perhaps feeling maybe depressed or de deflated perhaps on hearing about this first noble truth, rather we can actually begin to hold it just a little bit more lightly when we begin to see that it's not personal. It's not a personal thing at all. At the same time though, it's not about holding it with a kind of a flippant or a cold energy in any way. That's not what it's about either. It's really about simply opening to the truth and taking it in, acknowledging, recognizing that this truth is present. And out of this, it prompts us to move in the direction of transcendence of Dukkha, to free ourselves from it. So the Buddha gave us an instruction related to this first noble truth. And he said that 
this first noble truth needs to be understood. So how do we come to understand it? By opening to it. By letting it in. By feeling it. By noticing it. By experiencing it. With the support of mindfulness. That's what helps us to get in touch with this first noble truth. But this has not been our habit, has it? Over many lifetimes, usually we don't have the staying power to be with the painful or the difficult or the unpleasant. We've spent so much time getting away from it. So it's very difficult for us to begin to turn to it and let it in, isn't it? It's painful. So it's a process. It's a process of very gently and slowly allowing ourselves to open to and get in touch with this first noble truth. Because it can take us a long time actually in the practice to get the point of the practice and that is that it's not about pleasant experience. The practice is not about a pleasant experience at all. But it's also not about an unpleasant experience. It's about opening to the full range of experience, both the pleasant and the unpleasant, and the neutral too, of course, but I'm talking about the two poles. So the, pra the practice is about opening to the full range of, of experience. Now for some people, not, not too many people, but some, there is a very deep tendency to open to Dukkha, they can do this very well and then get stuck in Dukkha, stay with it. In another way you can say attach to Dukkha, attach to the painful, the difficult, the unpleasant. And it can be quite difficult for this kind of mind to let go of the difficult, of the unpleasant, of the painful. So for this kind of mind what we encourage is inclining towards the beautiful, the happy, the lovely, the light, the pretty. And that is to help bring balance into the mind. So if you happen to be one of those people that are very good at opening to Dukkha, so much so that that's where you find yourself dwelling, then it would be very helpful for that mind to incline towards the light, the lovely, the soft and the beautiful. But for many of us, we have to shepherd the mind to begin to open to the difficult because that's what's hard for us. As we begin to open to the, the, the dukkha, the difficult aspects of experience, something very beautiful begins to happen too. We begin to get in touch with the compassionate heart. You cannot open to Dukkha without the support of compassion. Because it's the compassionate heart that resonates with pain, with suffering. So this begins to be ignited within the heart too. And so what also happens is that perhaps for the very first time, we begin to feel a resonance with humanity, with all living beings. We, we come to see that this is what all living beings experience. 
there is this experience of dukkha and we all want desperately to be happy but we don't know how to do it and so really the heart can connect with with all living beings just by through our own practice opening gently to dukkha So with the support of the compassionate heart, the practice of wisdom and mindfulness, slowly we begin to open to this first noble truth and we come to understand it. Just as the Buddha said, we fulfill his instruction related to this first noble truth. We come to understand it. And what is it that we understand? We understand that there is a cause. And so this takes us to the second noble truth. The cause of suffering being craving. So craving is the, the translation, the English translation that we use for the Pali word tanha. Tanha is the Pali word for craving. And directly translated it actually is thirst we use the word craving so if you know the experience of thirst if you you haven't had any water for a while you know it kind of gnaws away at you it can occupy the mind totally where all we can think of is having that thirst quenched that's the experience of craving when we craving is there it gnaws away at us so it's essential to know the cause of suffering in the same way with the diagnosis of a disease, when we know the cause, then we can find a cure. And similarly for us in our practice. What usually happens though when they're suffering? What do we usually do? I know that I've done this. We blame someone else if we can. It's your fault. You did something wrong. Sometimes we'll blame ourselves in the I'm bad. I'm a bad person though, I'm no good. Sometimes we'll do that too. Or sometimes we'll blame the, the unpleasant experience or the, 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 the pleasant sensation or the unpleasant sensation. But it's none of those. That is not the cause of our suffering. With investigation, as we look more deeply within our own experience by means of the support of mindfulness, we'll come to see that it is the grasping at the wanting that arises in the mind that is causing the suffering for us. So it's in the mind. This is where we're working. So what we're really asked to do is to simply recognize in any moment that desire, that's another word that we use also for craving, that desire or craving is present in the mind. And not get rid of it. Just notice it. Ah, there's wanting in the mind. Oh, there's desire in the mind. Or there's craving in the mind. You can use any of those words. So this is our practice for us, to repeatedly come to see this. So we work with opening to this first noble truth of Dukkha by seeing how it arises and recognizing that at any time that there is Dukkha, we will see one of the various forms of craving that could be present. They will be there together. When there is Dukkha, when there is suffering, there will have to be craving there. 
and there happen to be three kinds of craving. So let's take a look at the three, one, all of the three kinds of craving that may be there at any given time when there's dukkha present in our experience. So the first kind, this is the one we usually know best, we know it very well. This is craving for sense pleasures, right? Cla craving for pleasant sights, sounds, smells, taste, touches, and pleasant things that arise within the mind, present, pleasant mental experiences. And we know these very well. And we'll do sometimes whatever we can to fulfill these desires for the sense pleasures. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that. We can be very single-minded, uh, bulldoze our way through something to get what we want. I don't know if you remember several years ago, there was, a, an, an, I think it was either on the news or in the newspaper, you know, they have these sales at these department stores. It's people stand in line from 3 a.m. and the doors open at 5 and then everybody stampedes in to get the, their desire, the, the item of their desire purchased at a lower price. Well, somebody was trampled to death in the desperate desire to have that, you know, item in their hands that, would give them this pleasure, this sense pleasure. So it's really very sad what can happen as a result of this craving for sense pleasures. We'll hurt ourselves, we'll hurt others just to get what we want. Not to mention too, of course, the, the attachment to the mental, the, 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 the pleasures that arise through the practice. Maybe you've had a, a little taste of calm, for example, or just a little bit of ease in the mind. And as I said earlier, what do we do? We attach to it, and then we suffer when it goes. But as we know, what arises ceases. All of these sense pleasures come and go. That's where the suffering lies. We cannot keep them for very long. They come and they go. Then we've got to get another one and another one. And so that keeps this craving alive. It doesn't deliver for us. So that's the first kind of craving. So then what about the second kind of craving? This is craving for future becoming or for future existence. That's the way it's described. It sounds a little more difficult to understand than it actually is. Really, it's about projecting into the future how we think we're going to be or we'd like to be. At the end of this retreat, I'm going to be happier, wiser, more enlightened, more patient, more loving with my family, whatever your little story is. That's, what we pre that's being born into future moments that haven't arisen yet. It's all future becoming. It can be, I'm going to become a better meditator at the end of this retreat or at the end of this sit. It can even be so close and so ordinary as to be, in the next breath, I'm going to breathe perfectly. I'm going to be there for the full experience of this half breath. And the breath hasn't even arisen yet, but we're projecting into the future. The future can be just the next moment, but it's still the future. Or perhaps we're sitting up here 
going to ring the bell and we're thinking when I ring this bell it is going to be perfect I'm going to be the perfect so we're born into being the best or a, a better whatever it might be this is what it what it is craving for future becoming it could be craving for the relationship we're going to have the the, the trip we're going to be on any of those things future moments future becoming then the third kind is craving for non-existence. It's the opposite kind of craving. This is where we're pulling away from the moment. The first one is leaning into the moment, craving for future existence. Now we're pulling away from the moment, wanting to get rid of or pull away from what is actually here. So we want to get rid of our pride or our judgmental mind or our anger or our fear or our jealousy pulling away from the moment not wanting to be with what is present or we could say wanting the the present moment not to exist okay. craving for unbecoming that's another way of calling it craving for non-existence so in a worldly kind of way, I don't know if you've had this kind of experience where perhaps we're in conversation with somebody. We're needing to go somewhere, but um, somebody has stopped us en route to wherever we're going and they're engaging us in conversation and we want the conversation to end. Have you had that feeling where inside you're walking away backwards, but actually you're standing there having the conversation, but you're already in your car driving off somewhere? That's craving for non-existence, wanting to get away from the moment. I know this one very well. <laughs> yeah, It's often at a, some kind of maybe a social gathering where we're you know, at a party or something like that. And so, you know, the, the, the first hour, all right, you're fine, you're there for the first hour, but then you're... You don't really want to look at your watch, but you're looking at your watch and then you're backing out of the, the door, hoping that no one will notice that that's what you're doing. That's what's happening. Craving for unbecoming, not wanting to be with what's happening in the moment. It's good to know that it can manifest in all of these kind of ordinary worldly ways because that's how we can bring these Four Noble Truths to life out in the world we can see them showing themselves there it's like this one this last kind is the kind of I'm out of here experience uh, where we, 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 we want to get away I just saw this when Andrea and I were having lunch out uh, you know first of all it was in the shade where I was in the shade when I was on my own so I could see it was oh, craving for unbecoming wanting to get out of the shade so that I could get into the warmth become the warmth so then I'm in the warmth and then that changes to wanting to get out unbecome from the warmth and now get into the cool and so this is how we we live from one moment to the next living out these different kinds of craving yet all of these different kinds of craving that can arise for us in any moment they're all born out of this wrong view this wrong understanding of this is me and my experience that I am having. Or this wrong view of self. 
It's the wrong idea that this is me and I'm having the experience and therefore I have to do something about it. This is the very birth of dukkha, the very birth of suffering. It's the attachment to the idea of me, myself and mine. But when it, with, with all of experience and specifically now related to desire, it's not about me and my desire that I have to fulfill. So the second noble truth, once again, is about seeing what arises, that this is desire arising, being known, and then we see that it ceases by itself. So it's not about judging ourselves and I'm such a greedy person, I'm such an attached person, I'm so ambitious or I'm so anything. Really, it's just about seeing the arising of whatever the quality is within the mind, seeing it and knowing it for what it is, not taking it personally and seeing that it changes. So in this way, as we practice, we come to see how craving operates to create suffering. When something arises and we grasp at it as being mine that I have to do something with, that's where the suffering arises. So we investigate the suffering that results when we take an experience personally. We see it. This is the craving, taking it personally. We see the suffering that results. So with anger, for example, one time I was in interview with Joseph and there was a tremendous amount of anger that had arose in me and I was in tears in the interview. I'm such an angry person. I've got so much anger. What was happening? I was attaching to it, grasping at the arising. All he said to me was, Annie, it's not your anger. It is anger. It doesn't belong to anybody. It can simply be known, watched, experienced, and we see what happens to it. It arises and it ceases. So what was the Buddha's instruction related to this second noble truth? First noble truth, dukkha needs to be understood. Second noble truth, that craving, the cause of suffering, needs to be abandoned. So what does this abandoning actually mean? Another word we can use is either let go or let be, because sometimes letting go can imply getting rid of something or something goes away. But really, it's simply the mind that lets go of grasping at it and wanting to do something with whatever has arisen in the mind. That is the abandoning. So let me give you an example. Many years ago, I had a, a long conversation with my mother about my life, about my childhood. And I was trying to explain something to her about my life. And it was a, a kind of an intimate conversation. And I, I really wanted her to understand what I was talking about. But she didn't understand. And so I spent quite a few months trying to get her to understand. I wanted her to understand. And I could see that I was suffering. 
And so as I worked with this and reflected and saw the suffering that was arising within me and the disconnection that was there, through recognizing, through seeing this suffering, through this wanting, wanting her to respond in a particular way, not getting it, and the suffering that was there with it, letting go happened. In the letting go, in its place, was loving kindness, the heart of love. So instead of the separation that had been there with me and my mother, I wanted her to understand and I wasn't getting what I wanted, so I was feeling misunderstood and so on. Just a lot of suffering and anger and resentment. As soon as I could let go and allow her to not understand, could that be okay? And it was okay. That was where the freedom arose. And together with that freedom was the heart of love, this open, connected feeling. So we can also see how, when craving is present, how it operates in such a destructive way to create separation and distance between us and life. So we hold on to things in life, so many things, so many arenas. And sometimes we do get momentary fulfillment. Yes, our, our desire is met, but only momentarily. And then it changes again, doesn't it? Then either the, the, the causes and conditions have shifted, sankara, dukkha, things have changed. And now there's a new desire that's arisen. We take a shower, we're, we're out in the sun, out in the heat. Oh, a nice cool shower will be wonderful. We take a shower, but within a few minutes, now it's too cold. Now we've had enough. We're turning in all pruney if we've been in the shower for a long time. And, and now we want to get out. Now we want a different experience. So this is how we begin to see more and more. Things are constantly on the move. There's no point in holding on to something. Change happens constantly. The Buddha's well-known phrase, all that arises ceases, is so important for us to begin to see in all experiences as they arise. What's new becomes old very quickly. Take a look at some of the possessions we have. Cars. It seems I must be a very slow learner. Fifteen years ago I bought a new car. And geez, I got so upset when I got a scratch. I wanted it to be new. I wanted it to stay new. And I could see the suffering with wanting it to stay new. Oh, let go. All right, get your dirty feet into the car. Doesn't matter. And so we let go. We care. We keep it clean. We, we allow the, the process of nature, the nature of experience, to take its course. Goodness me, that 15-year-old car died on me, I bought a new car, the very same thing happened. <laughs> Gosh, banged the door against some pole and a little bit of a dent. and oh. But I let go much quicker this time. So there was some learning. There definitely has been an improvement, definitely has been a shift. So more and more we want to see how 
when there is grasping, craving, I'm using all these words interchangeably, holding on, we'll see that there's suffering. So we're seeing the first and second noble truth here. In the seeing of this, letting go comes about. We let go. Oh, it's okay for the car to get a scratch. It's okay for my mother to not understand. It's okay for that sound to go on for 15 minutes outside the window. It's okay. We let go. And with this letting go, what have we realized? What have we come to know? The third noble truth shows itself. The end of Dukkha. The end of suffering. So the Buddha's instruction related to this third noble truth is that the end of suffering is to be realized. It's not that we get it, we realize that this is what we're experiencing in the moment. We've let go and taste that moment of the end of suffering. So I'm going to talk briefly about three different kinds of the end of suffering, three different kinds of the third noble truth. So firstly, there is the highest level of the third noble truth. There's the highest level of, 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 of um, realizing. And that is the realization of a Buddha or an enlightened being. That is when we've come completely to the end of this round of birth and death. But then there's also partial realization of the end of suffering. That's when there's some degree of realization of the end of suffering. That's when there is some degree of understanding of the truth of impermanence. We've got it at a fair level of, of understanding. We've grasped it. We've seen it directly at a fair level within us. That's to say that some of the ignorance in the mind has now been transformed into wisdom. A, a little bit of a chunk has been transformed into wisdom. But then there's a different kind, another level that we can all work with. And it's very important to give this, and it's called momentary realization of the end of suffering. We want to give this some attention. Because more often than not, we hear about the Four Noble Truths or the end of suffering, and we're looking way over there for the end of suffering. And we're missing the many small moments that we may be experiencing at any given time in our practice. And so then it's possible that we can feel disheartened because the road looks long and difficult and we've got our sights set down there, but we're missing the really valid moments of the end of suffering, even if it's just a moment that we're experiencing here and now. For example, when we let go of wanting the pain in the knee to go away. We're sitting, we've got this pain in the knee, we don't like it, we want it to go away, so it's the first and the second noble truth, craving, wanting it to go away, and so now there's suffering, the suffering in the mind that we're talking about. And then we realize, wait a minute, when we've got a body, it's going to have an unpleasant experience. Can I just let be with this, even if it's for a moment? We let go. We let in the unpleasantness, and it truly is okay, even if it is for just a moment. Taste that moment. 
In that moment, we've known the end of Dukkha. Just for a moment. It can be just a quick moment, but we want to notice it because if we miss it, we're already grasping at something else. We've already re-grasped at wanting the pain in the knee to go away. So savor those moments when we have let go. Letting be, it's the mind of equanimity, the non-grasping mind of not pushing away the unpleasant or grasping at the pleasant. We're just letting be with things as they are in this moment. So you want to taste and know that ease of the end of suffering just in the moment. Because the more we know this taste, the more the mind will incline in that direction of non-grasping and therefore there will be more and more moments of the end of suffering. A deeper understanding will arise in the mind to give way to a deeper aspect of letting go. So when we know the taste of the end of suffering, even if it is in just a moment, now there's also something else that we know. Now we know what to do in order not to suffer. That is to say, now we know how to live in order not to suffer. Or you can say, now we know how to live in order to experience the end of suffering or to realize the end of suffering. And this is how the fourth noble truth shows itself to us. When we have a taste of the end of suffering, if realized it just for a moment, then we know, ah, when I don't cling, when I don't grasp, it's this that brings the sense of ease, letting be with the moments just as they are. So this is pointing to the way to live or the way to practice in order not to suffer. So this fourth noble truth is called the Eightfold Path. And this is how we live and practice in order not to suffer. You can also call it living wisely in the world, living this Eightfold Path wisely in order not to suffer. So the Buddha's instructions related to this fourth noble truth were that the Eightfold Path needs to be developed. And this is what we're working with right here in our practice. We're developing this fourth noble truth to support ourselves to learn how not to suffer. So let's briefly go through what these eight steps are. There is right view, or you could call it wise view. That is the view that more and more knows don't grasp at things because they're changing all the time. That's one aspect of right view. And so then these, there is the intention to live rightly in the world. Bringing in speaking wisely, acting wisely in the world, living from a, a pl place of wise livelihood, wise effort in terms of how we live and, and act in the world, wise or right mindfulness, and wise or right concentration. 
these are the eight steps that we develop in our life and in our practice in order to come to know how not to suffer. So knowing these four noble truths is really the crux of our practice. It's pivotal to our deepening freedom from suffering, or you could say our growing true happiness in the world. We're just turning it around, saying it a different way. This is what the Buddha had to say related to these four noble truths. He said, to believe that one can realize true happiness without having understood the four noble truths is like tr trying to construct the upper floors of a house without having first constructed its lower floors and its foundation. It is not possible. So we come to know and practice, understand these four noble truths by bringing them to life in our practice, in our worldly life. And in this way, we're using our lives in an onward leading way towards freedom from suffering, towards true happiness. So let's sit together quietly for a moment. <coughs> 